And welcome to episode 624 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Perspective, brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I'm Ben Miller with Ben Rinberg of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hello. I'm uh, Ben. I'm at the. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in the dugout at Arnold Field right now. I know. Looking out it's exciting. At, uh, yeah, looking out of the Stompers Field. It's the first time we've had a, uh, an episode that has been recorded outdoors in a while. So uh-huh. uh, it'll be a throwback to the days of birds chirping. So that's nice. <laughs> That's right. There, are, there are a lot of birds. That this is a notable feature of the field is there are a lot of birds. So we might have to incorporate this somehow. Uh, later in the show, Sahadev will be talking to Travis Sochik of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. And right now, we will be talking to Sarah Sprague, noted writer of all sorts of things, contributor to Uproxx, and more importantly for us, the uh, writer of essay in the 2015 annual about the Pittsburgh. Pirates. Hi, Sarah. Hi. How you guys doing today? Very well. So you, um, your essay is is um, is kind of framed around these quotes from famous Pittsburghians, including Jeff Goldblum and the actress who plays Britta in Community. Are Pittsburghians like Canadians in that they are keenly aware of every reasonably famous person who has ever come from there, and they take great pride in it? Or did you have to really scour to find? notable people from that great city oh no pittsburgh's are i would say are almost worse than canadians in this uh aspect they will instantaneously uh acknowledge (laughs) anyone that was part of their tribe for even a brief amount of time uh (laughs) and and consider them one of their as one of their own and will lay claim to them for the rest of their lives whether they like it or not i mean you will see people stretch to be like, oh, well, you know, my dad went on a blind date with Jay Leno's wife, you know, back in 1976. <laughs> that might explain why there's such a, a close connection that you seem to feel to A.J. Burnett, which we'll talk to <laughs> in a couple of minutes. But I wanted to ask you about the experience of the one-game playoff, because ever since before it even started, Ben and I have talked about the, the sort of question of whether that is the playoffs or not, whether that counts as making the postseason or not. And uh, your essay is so much about this kind of feeling of, of uh, uncertain satisfaction with a season like the Pirates had. It, it, was it a good season or was it a bad season? If it was a, you know, a good season, why do you kind of feel so let down? So having, having watched that game, and I know it's somewhat tainted by the fact that it wasn't remotely close, but having watched that game and been in that game uh, and thought a lot about the Pirates season, do you think it counts as the playoffs? You know, I I used to not. I used to think it didn't even even before the the pirates were were in it. I I, I never really. It just didn't. It, it's like a weird asterisk tie on. And then you know, the first time I was like, okay, you know, this this is great. And then the, it's kind of weird. I, sometimes it's almost like other people make you feel bad <laughs> about thinking it's the playoff. Uh, I have some friends that are hardcore Yankee fans and they're like, oh, well, you know, whatever, just the wild card. And you're like, wait, don't take this from me. It's all I've got. And 
now I've kind of grown to kind of feel like it's the playoffs just because you have to. Because if you don't, then then what's the point? Then then you just played an extra game for nothing. Even if you lost, then you why were you staked in it to begin with? So so you have to think of it as a fan. You have to think of it as you know part of the playoffs as, as someone that you know writes and works in sports and has for a long time. I I, I think it's not a good way to end the season in any sort of way. It, it, it's really a terrible disservice to the, you know, 162 other games you've played in that year just to have it come down to one, especially in baseball. It just makes no sense. It's it's dumb. Like the shootout in hockey, it just it's dumb. So things are, are going well for the Pirates, not only the, the two playoff appearances in a row, but for the sixth year in a row, their attendance is up. Uh, and and Frank Coonley is claiming that they have a good TV contract, and now they're talking about possibly extending Andrew McCutcheon, who has had one of the best contracts in baseball, uh, but it's approaching its end in a couple of years, and, and there are articles about whether they will be willing to really dig deep for him. So is it realistic to think that the Pirates will not be a bottom-spending team in the near future sometime, that they won't be in the, the bottom 10 payrolls or so in baseball? Well, I mean, we're taking a really big leap of faith that it is uh, a good TV contract, because we honestly don't know. I mean, he a lot of fans feel that he's overstating the value of that contract, that it's probably not that great. Uh, obviously, you know, he signed it. His He's got to kind of make it look good for Root Sports and, and everyone else. You know, and that TV contract, I believe, comes at, like, I, I believe it's, like, one year off of when uh, McCutcheon's contract uh, is up. Uh, so I, I, you don't want to think that one goes hand-in-hand because hand, he's going to have to get a larger TV contract. Even if he signed a good deal a few years ago, all you have to do is look at the past, you know, year of TV contract. Look look at what the Diamondbacks just got. Um so what was a good deal a little bit ago is probably not a great deal today. Uh, whether or not he's going to get that money out of Root Sports in the future to help increase the payroll, I, I don't know. Like, I, I really – that's a very murky side of the business I don't like to talk about because you're just stabbing. You're just, you're just guessing, and that just doesn't seem really, really great because I don't, I, I don't know. But I do know if they are going – McCutcheon's the type of player I don't think they're going to want to let just go over a few million dollars. I mean, they have him at a deal now. Like they, He is an absolute bargain basement, payroll-wise, superstar. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that he uh, plays for the amount of money he plays for. So, yeah, uh, I would like to think that they would, you know, not to use a pun, go to bat for him. But I, I, he's kind of going to be due if that makes sense. So there are small market or relatively small market teams that have kind of transcended that a little bit. The Brewers are a very small market, but uh, they do very well. They have a, you know, good, better attendance and better TV ratings than you would expect. And the Mariners aren't a huge market, but a decade ago they had the highest TV ratings and I think maybe even the highest attendance in baseball. And so Pittsburgh, I'm wondering if, there's the potential, if they had four or five or seven or 12 good years, is there the potential that they would kind of break out of that small market uh, rut 
that they are in, are they broke because they lost for 20 years? Or are, are they always going to be broke? Is there just nothing you can do to get Pittsburgh, you know, the extra 700,000 fans uh, that would, you know, make them able to compete with the, the bigger market or at least medium market teams? I think it's really tough because you, you're going to have to extend the Pirates to be nationwide phenomenons. Like, you know, the Brewers, you know, they have a huge swath of land that they can, you know, kind of claim as their own. And, you know, Pittsburgh is sandwiched between a lot of other teams. I mean, unfortunately, like the Indians being right there, they're not going to, like, push into Ohio right there and gain that many more fans. It's not... There's not going to be pockets of huge pirate fans you're going to find in you know Nevada or in Alabama or in Montana, and I think that's that's going to be that tough sell, like to to get them to have that amount of money and have that amount of people kind of being at least aware of them enough that they're willing to spend just being able to see the pirates to gain that it's I think it's a very different thing I think Pittsburgh again very geographically that te- they're they are going to be very limited and just staying very regional um it's not like football where there's this huge footprint of a memory of 70s wins people have good memories of the 70s wins and and pirate and the pirates but they they don't they didn't carry that fandom for 20 more years People have been talking about the Pirates outfield for quite a while. The whole team is is young. Everyone in the starting lineup is under 30, at least for right now, which seems like it can't be a bad thing. And obviously McCutcheon is McCutcheon, but the the super outfield didn't totally come together last year because Gregory Polanco slumped after after an initial week or so of hot hitting. So are you expecting the the McCutcheon, Polanco, Marte, Voltron outfield to be something really special as soon as this year? I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Like, I, I'm actually really excited to see, you know, Marte has had such like a, just an amazing start to anyone, any career. Like, it, I'm really, I'm interested to see how that still gels and if he's still getting better, because I mean, he's. It's amazing to watch him. He covers so much ground. It, it it'll it'll be uh it'll be fun to see if like he can still kind of almost in some ways in some in some ways almost overshadow McCutcheon in the field. Uh, you know, Polanco, yeah, had regression last year, but I think that he's still there's still a lot of opportunity there. Um, you know, for him, I don't think he's necessarily, you know, a lost cause in in any you know sort of start you know uh out there they're still pretty young but i don't i I, it's still all up like i don't feel like any of it's like lost in in any way in in the in the age difference they they seem like they're all pretty hungry i'm pacing off the distance to dead center it claims it's 435 feet i know that's deep center is it are you there yet i i have walked in from center it also claims 331 to the left field hang on Oh, I was just making a call. I'm with the Stompers. Oh, wow. You're big shot. You're with the Stompers. Yeah. Anyway, 435, 331 to left field. I don't think that's right. Anyway. Right. Well, tell us when your pacing, your scientific pacing study concludes. All right. So going back to A.J. Burnett, as promised. Burnett is a guy who, uh, if you're not from Pittsburgh, you probably didn't realize that he had kind of uh, evolved into this clubhouse figure, leadershipy kind of guy, or at least uh, that is how you portrayed him. Most of us, I think, probably still think of A.J. Burnett as a 
the guy who we knew when he was young and seemed to be a, a complainer and didn't seem to have a great attitude and all of that. So what is like what is what is AJ Burnett been like as a pirate uh, in 2013? What is it that you expect him to bring back to the club in 2015? Do you really genuinely believe that his value extends beyond the you know 180 league average innings that he might throw? Yeah, he you know. Just beyond, you know, the experience, I think, if anything, he's going to come back from Philly and hopefully be like, dude, I've seen what it's like on the other side. Let This system is working. This is why I want to be here. You know, he took a pretty significant uh, pay cut, you know, to to go back to Pittsburgh to to play for what he thinks and says is a contender. Uh, I, I do think he really did fire a lot of people up. I think he, you know, and I think he's actually one of those few players that actually got in the face of the fans even, you know, of what he thought was appropriate behavior in the ballpark. And I think that, I think that's been a long time since anyone's been that way in Pittsburgh at all, across all sports. Uh, and I think that was actually really interesting to see to, to, you know, for him to stake out a claim of, this is how I want you to be as, you know, players, you know, I'm, I'm totally all in, you know, you guys should be all in. And I think that kind of carried through with everyone, you know, and it just seems like he kind of gets it. I, you know, he seems like he, he and Ray Searage really kind of had like a really nice, he found, you know, he helped, he has nothing but good things to say about, you know, the pitching coach and what it did for, you know, his two Samer and, you know, the same, you know, work that, you know, Ray Searage has done for with a lot of, you know, pitchers that have come through, like just, you know, quick, you know, little tweaks on mechanics that have gone, you know, a pretty long way. And, I, you know, and he's another one that players like playing with, you know, players like playing with Searage. And if you've got a veteran pitcher saying like, hey, this guy's the real deal, I think that does help help the, le- you know, the, the rest of your uh, roster. So you're you're buying the the cult of Searage. Jeff Sullivan did a a survey at Fangraphs a week or so ago where he asked Fangraphs readers to rate pitching coaches, and Searage just barely took the top spot over Don Cooper. And we've talked on the show before about how you know coaches go through periods where they are regarded as geniuses, and then maybe the the genius stuff stops working, and who knows whether it's something real or it's just a few guys who happen to put it together at the right time. But, but you've seen enough to, to buy into it to, to some extent. Yeah. Again, this is going to sound like one of those stupid cliche Pittsburgh gritty things, but people like it, you know, and and I think this extends to a lot of times with how uh, all of the sports clubs are run. They like coaches that, you know, played and, you know, kind of, had their own sort of down and out story at one time or another and kind of grit through it with them. And they're not showy. They're just kind of, you know, Ray Sears, supposedly he's not from what I understand a yeller or anything else. He he's very patient, uh, not calling out errors in front of the whole team. Like if there's things that need to be adjusted, it's all very one-on-one. And I think that goes a long way with both veterans and really young players that, Need, you know, just no, just need small tweaking, you know, how how to have their own confidence in it and not be belittled in front of anyone else. I, I think that really does make a big difference. And I think that's probably the big difference with him. He says all the right things. The players all seem to love him. That means that's kind of the big difference is, you know, people that kind of buy into what he tells them to do obviously have market change in, in how they're playing. So, 
Yeah, I have no problem uh, you know, drinking that Kool-Aid. And are you a believer in the cult of Russell Martin? And are you, uh, did you have any, I guess, hope that given how happy everybody seemed to be with that arrangement, uh, that, that they would have any chance of bringing him back? I mean, it seems like no kind of relationship between player and team has been as fruitful and fortuitous and seemingly goodwilled as the Martin Pirates one. And you sort of thought, oh, maybe could this be where they spend a little money? Uh, and then they didn't. Did that surprise you at all, or was it just completely doomed as soon as he got good again? Oh, I, 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 that was that. And I, anyone who thought he was staying seemed like a crazy person. Uh, I, no, he not in last year's market. Not when there were so few catchers uh, of his caliber um, out there. There was going to be just huge money, and I. I hate saying like you don't like giving giving him an enormous contract would have been a huge burden on the future for the Pirates and and did you did you really think did we really think that you know Martin was going to have that type of production and and have that type of you know ability to keep you know pitch framing for, for everyone for the next you know four or five years I think that would have been actually almost too much of a gamble. Uh, and it, I don't, I, it was a little sad to think all season that like, this guy's great. We're going to lose him. But that's just sometimes how it goes as a fan of a small market team. You, you love someone. There's always in the back of your mind, you could lose them someday. So there's always another good framing catcher from the Yankees that you can trade for or sign. Well, they just seem to like breed them like rabbits. I don't know what they do up there, but it's like half their roster is, you know, <laughs> catchers. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so one of the more interesting moves that the Pirates made this offseason was the signing of Kong from Korea, the first player to make this transition. And I guess the Pirates have a lot of multi-position flexibility guys with him and Sean Rodriguez and Josh Harrison. So was there anything about the Pirates that you think made them the team that was most enthusiastic about trying Kong, trying someone who really came from somewhere where, you know, the players haven't been proven in the majors yet. It's an interesting experiment, and I wonder whether it fits into a, a Pirates pattern at all. Well, Clint, you know, Clint Hurdle seems really uh, excited about the idea of, you know, the super utility guy. Yeah. Uh, as, as, the, as he likes to say, the you know, the guy that's going to play every position. I, I don't think it was such a huge contract that it's it's – gonna hurt them i think it is actually really obviously very smart because they have some you know like you know look at what would happen with harrison he was able to you know pretty easily move around the field you know when needed and you know when you're playing with a lot of guys that are really kind of maybe just you know okay at certain positions it's good to see where you can have someone really be solid and, and move around i think it's an interesting I think we're going to see more of this on almost every team. Like you, you have to, you can't, it's not so specialized now, especially with, you know, since the pirates are big, you know, defensive shifters, having guys that are comfortable in all parts of the field is probably a good idea. It's, it's an interesting thing that the pirates are, are looking to other sports for inspiration that they're talking about how best to, rest players are looking at the Golden State Warriors and the players' minutes, and it's just kind of this very broad view of Sabre metrics that they have taken where they're looking at all sorts of sports, not just the baseball precedents. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Golden State has 
you know, they've had a lot of injuries. I mean, I know the Spurs, you know, San Antonio Spurs, that's really more their thing. But I I think you would – I think now as, as people are starting to look at all of sports much more closely, not, you know, obviously baseball is, you know, miles ahead of everyone else at, at looking, you know, at how highly, you know, to control players, you know, by necessity, obviously they have to. You know, it's interesting to see, like, obviously people who have – been playing in you know basketball and you know as the nhl develops their own analytical analytical tools um to some extent and that it you're going to start to see people looking at things in a different way because obviously a general manager's brain in the nhl has been conditioned to look for players differently than a baseball player you know a baseball manager has been so i bet you we're going to see a lot of this kind of cross-pollinization in in all leagues Mm-hmm. I don't think he. I don't think he's an outlier in that at all. Mm-hmm. All right. So tell us what we should expect from the Pirates this year. How many wins? Where do you think they'll finish? I'm gonna actually say I'm gonna say 95 and 67. Ooh. I'm putting them one win ahead of 2013. Wow, that's very feel, optimistic. I am. You, you know, Hurdle. I mean, everyone's saying it, it's dumb because you know, obviously, camp. Everyone's positive but everyone the expectation this year because after being so close last year and and the year before really is to win the division this year um and i really feel like anything short of winning the division this year is going to feel like a disappointment well i i think all the you know all those things are in place you know clint hurdles saying this is the best team he feels like he's taken into training camp and so it could just be saying that, or we could actually really have the best team you've seen come into camp. Mm-hmm. So I actually am really positive. I'm interested to see what happens. It's going to be a year like where we're going to have to see, you know, some breakout from from players like you know Planco. You know, Walker is going to be, you know, has to really show himself if he's going to, because he's he's another one that's at the end of his contract, and if he's going to go, it's funny we talked about players that we like already leaving, but if he's going to want to get big money elsewhere because he's probably, you know, if he probably doesn't get it from Pittsburgh, he's going to have to start making that statement right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about the year. All right. Well, thank you for, for telling us about it. Thank you for having me. All right. So you can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sprague. She is an editor at Yard Barker and you can find her writing at sarahsprague.com. Now, after the musical break, Sahadev will speak to Travis Sawchick. And Sam, you can go back to pacing Arnold Field. It's all good news now, because we left the taps running for a hundred years. So drink into the drink, plastic cup drink, drink with the bubble. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, Associate Editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Travis Sawchik, Pirates and MLB reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and author of the upcoming book, Big Data Baseball. Uh, this book, uh, I, obviously I haven't read it because it's coming out, I believe, in May, but it, it looks like it's going to be a must-read for uh, baseball fans right up there with the extra 2% in Moneyball. This 
this uh just just the excerpts and everything that i hear about it makes it seem like something that uh we're going to want to pick up right away travis uh why why don't we start off with the book and and why don't you just give us uh what the inspiration was for the book and and what what we can expect to read in it sure yeah um well noted the introduction i covered pirates and major league baseball for Pittsburgh tribune review and my first year on the beat was 2013 and the Pirates, of course, ended that long playoff drought and uh, really captivated the city here and I think much of Major League Baseball with, uh, with their turnaround, which like the Royals did last year. And, you know, what was interesting to me, uh, now I was familiar with the Pirates' background. I'd always followed baseball closely and uh, been a long-time baseball perspective subscriber, visit Fangraphs every day. I'll do, I did all that sort of thing. But what fascinated me about the Pirates' commitment job is I, I looked at the farm to the and I I thought the Pirates had a chance to be pretty competitive and in the not-too-distant future with guys like Cole and Tyone and Polanco uh, in the pipeline. But in 2013, it was interesting that they turned around you know, their, their performance with much of the same cast uh, they had in 2012. Russell Martin was an important addition, which we covered in the book, uh, Liriano. But most of the team, the 90% of the roster, was, was the same as it had been a year earlier. Uh, so as the season went on, the and as we got into August and September, it was clear this team was, was not going to collapse and not going to fade away. I really started to look into, okay, what was going on here? How did they do, do this turnaround? What were, what were the mechanics behind it? The shifting we'd written about early in the year, because that, that was fairly obvious from the press box. You, you know, they were uh, really radically altering their, their defense often, and it had been a 500% increase in the year before as far as their, uh, their amount of total shift. So, that had become apparent, but was, what was also interesting as the year went on is I noticed that almost every pitcher on the staff had uh, not only increased their two-team or taking fastball usage, but the ground ball rate had uh, almost across the board, they'd all really increased. And uh, I think the 2013 Pirates team still has the, the highest ground ball rate uh, that's been recorded since uh, baseball reference or where anyone's been recording ground ball rate. So, there's this, it became apparent to me there's some systematic approach going on that has been a, uh, a dramatic pivot from what they were doing a year earlier. And I wrote several articles for the Tribune Review on this, and I just thought, you know, this is a bigger story, and let, let's see if there's something there. Let's talk to some people, let's see if anyone's interested in this. And I you know, started digging, and it became more interesting, and uh, it led to this book, which... Uh, you know, I, I hope people enjoy and it's well received uh, because I'm really excited about it. It's a really project to work on. You were on MLB Network. It was on uh, Wednesday. I believe you can find that online, and I'll post I'll post the the link to your segment. It was great stuff. It was interesting stuff about the Pirates and about the book. And uh, one of the things that stood out to me was uh, Clint Hurdle. I, I I kind of love his transformation. Uh, he, he's one of those. He was kind of an old school guy in Colorado. Uh, you know, more just n- known more as a clubhouse guy, not the in game tactician. And he's kind of transformed himself. Explain to me how he, what was that moment that hit him? Was there a specific moment that hit him where he started embracing analytics? And was that a key to the Pirates uh, hiring him, giving him a second chance? Right, that's a great question. And uh, it's important about this book that it is about, you know, it is about good data, it is about sabermetrics, it is about fancy stats and all. It's, there's a lot of numbers in it, but it's also very much a book about people 
and Hurdle's the key character in this book. And when he was in Colorado, he was not uh, he was not a psychometric, uh, an analytical uh, sort of manager. He was old school. He was a clubhouse first kind of guy, as you mentioned. And it wasn't until after he was fired at Colorado, he went to MLB Network and he he worked there for a short time as a, as a studio analyst. And that was the first time he was really exposed to working with the production people and people behind the scenes there who were really interested in the data side of the game. But he was really exposed to uh, the analytical side of the game on a daily basis. That was the first time he really visited sites like baseball perspectives, fan graphs, the staples of, uh, I'm sure, many folks in your audience. And that was really the first time he got interested, saw it, was exposed to it. Uh, you know, regularly, because if Colorado Hurdles there does not have a full-time uh, data, I don't believe they have a full-time data analyst, and certainly one Hurdles is interacting with. So that it really began at MLB Network. But still, when he took the Pirates job, uh, he went to the Rangers and he took over the Pirates in 2011. And then his first couple years with the Pirates, even though Dan Fox had come on board and he was building proprietary database and He's starting to dig into the numbers for the Pirates. Hurdle is still kind of leery, skeptical of Fox and the analytics. But, but in 2012, in Bill's uh, second year there, he, he and Fox started to build a relationship, and they started to, to meet regularly before the first game of each homestand, or, or home series, excuse me. And that's where they started to build a relationship. And they talk about things other than baseball. They, they have a lot of uh, common interests from military history, uh, Fox likes to Civil War battlefields, and Hurdle's often referencing uh, military history and things of that nature. They're both uh, they're both very very much into their faith, so they, they talk about things other than baseball, uh, and that led to a trust level increasing this time in these conversations, and that led to at the end of 2012. Uh, an increase in shifting, an increase in seeing from this data and these database theories come out of the field. So uh, it's really about Hurdle being open-minded, building trust with Fox, and then seeing some of the results uh, at the minor league level. And that's another important important note because before the major league staff was willing to adopt some of these strategies, Fox and Kyle Stark, who's now an assistant general manager, had, had begun to experiment with radical defensive linemen at the minor league level and in 2010, 2011, 2012, and the Pirates were soon converting more ground balls out than any other minor league team in their respective leagues. So I think Hurdle saw, saw that data. He, he began to trust Fox more, and that's when we started to, and that's what led to that radical pivot in 2013. Uh, you talk about Dan Fox, and uh, you mentioned it in the MLB Network uh, segment, uh, Mike Fitzgerald. Uh, that liaison is so helpful. I feel like that guy uh, from the front office to the manager to talk to the coaching staff. But I think that that barrier that's hardest to be, uh, break down is is getting to the players. Uh, Jeff Samarja caused like a minor kerfuffle, I guess. Kind of, uh, you know, I, I've talked to Samarja quite a bit, and I, he's not a. I don't. I've never. Uh, 
viewed him as a you know a sabermetricator or a stat hater uh we've always had very civil and open conversations and i i assume he understands my viewpoints but uh his quote was i don't if you don't respect the guy that's telling you that's telling you that information you're not going to listen to him i think that's a really fair point i i mean who sometimes these analysts these players don't know who they are and and i understand that there's going to be some issue with uh them uh, embracing something from someone that they don't know their background they don't know what, what how do i trust that what you're telling me is accurate i i play the game and you know there's going to be that that type of mentality for certain players and not everyone's going to see these uh, these uh stats as as worth their while uh, so so my question is when you mentioned uh the, you know the, Hurdle had like a big meeting with all the players and all the coaching staff that's and said, you know, we're going to bring in these analytics. We're going to bring in this stuff and implement it into our game. Uh, that must have been really hard. And and I just can't I can't imagine how how that went over. I mean, how hard was that for some of the players? Uh, are there players that are still, you know, on the fence about this? New guys that come into the clubhouse. I mean, that. I have to assume there are still some that just don't really want to embrace the actual numbers of it. They'll just listen to their coaches. Is that the key that the coaches are the ones bringing this to them and not uh, guys coming down from the front office in a suit and tie and telling them, here are some numbers, here's a spreadsheet and here's what this says. Great. Uh, great question. And this is really, I think where the pirates uh, created a competitive advantage last two years. And they, they really did the advantage because as we know, every club, even the Phillies at this point has at least one analyst data cruncher in the front office. But I think we've seen that not every team uh, sees some of these uh, database theories, these sabermetric theories, make their way to the field because the manager, the coaches, and ultimately the players are still the gatekeepers that decide, you know, are we going to use this idea or are we going to resist it? Uh, I mean, just look at the Nationals last year. They hired a, a defensive coordinator of sorts, and yet they were still the least uh, aggressive shifting teams in the sport. So there's obviously some resistance there from players to accept some of these ideas. And he mentioned the meeting that uh, this was the, the first day of full squad workouts in 2013 in the uh, first training cafeteria in Bradenton, Florida. Hurdle had Fox and Fitzgerald come uh, alongside him at the front of the room and he introduced these guys and said, look, they're here to help. Uh, they're here to be resources for you. Respect them. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to help, they're not trying to hurt us. And you know, there are players who were rolling their eyes in that meeting and thought they could brush it off and thinking, whatever, you know, we're not going to listen to these people. Uh, but the second day, if the players were broken into smaller groups, they met with individual, co- their individual respective coaches and field optional coach, pitching coach, uh, what have you. And there would be then samples of scattering points that you seen during the season on themselves and familiar opponents like Jay Bruce and the Reds. And one thing that Fox and Fitzgerald tried to do when they learned that uh, their votes can be heard in 2013 is they tried to make uh, these database scary reports very visually friendly for players. So they weren't giving them, it wasn't so much spreadsheet of numbers they're handing out, it was more uh, heat chart oriented visual because Fox and Fitzgerald had understand, understood their recent encounters with players that uh, players are very smart visually. I mean, they pick up things very quickly. Uh, and if you present something that that makes sense, uh, uh, mapped out, few charts that we're all familiar with, they're going to embrace, they're going to more easily accept that. So they changed scouting reports from the first day of spring training. As, as I mentioned, they were introduced to these guys, and 
and told and really demanded to to work with them. Uh, and as the season went along, it wasn't just Fox and Fitzgerald meeting with Hurdle. Uh, well, first of all, it was Fox and Fitzgerald meeting in the, the pre-series meetings with the advanced coach or the advanced scouting reports, the uh, the coaching staff, Hurdle. So they were more integrated into the advanced meetings. And then they began holding uh, conference calls and road series. And by the second half of the season, Fitzgerald was often traveling with the team on road trips to be a resource uh, to uh, for the team, for coaches, for anyone who, who had questions. And, and just like Hurdle developed more uh, comfort and trust, the more he interacted with Fox and Fitzgerald, I think the same thing happened with the coaching staff. They were a little literally these guys early in 2013, players too, but as I saw them more, as they, as they got to know them more, as they, as they saw results from these ideas, they began to trust them more and uh, accept the findings more. Now, now not, not every player accepts them. I mean, I think A.J. Burnett had, had some moments where he saw a shift speed with the ball hit the other way, and, uh, you know, that irritated him. Not every player is on board with this, but I think most players didn't really accept it. Some, like Mark Lanz, have, have embraced the bat, or Charlie Morton. I mean, these guys with their pitch effects readings, they have questions, uh, and, you know, they help refine the battle with the question. These isn't coaches. This wasn't just a top-down issue where – that here's the analytics staff and general manager dictating what we're going to do on the field. Uh, the coaches were encouraged to, to ask questions to, uh, if, if they wanted something answered, if they wanted a detail or statistic, they were uh, encouraged to go ask Fox or Fitzgerald, some of the players. And, and that's where a lot of the ground ball, uh, uh, the ground ball theory, the ground ball approach to the, uh, ingrained along with the, the shift in is really part of the coaching staff asking really smart, really smart questions and getting data, uh, questions Fox and Fitzgerald hadn't thought of and, and getting data to, to enhance that philosophy. So, uh, yeah, I think that's really a key, key, key part of the book is that kind of symbiotic relationship between, uh, the field staff and the analytics staff that the Pirates did really well the last two years. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this uh, all day. I guess. I mean, I, it's it's fascinating. It, it you know, I, I disagreed with a lot of what Samarja said in that uh, article uh, that came out, but but uh, th- what he basically said about how the data is presented, how everything is presented. He didn't. He didn't. I don't think he meant it in that fashion. But I think. But I think that's the key to to getting this information to the players. It's how it's presented in the proper fashion, and and making sure that the coaches are on board, and and you're more likely to get at least some players, if not all the players involved on this, and and it'll it'll lead to good things. You're not you're not throwing out scouting. You're not throwing out old school coaching. You're you're just bringing in in new information and and perhaps better information, and it's only going to improve things. Now. Uh, Let's let's try and look at the 2015 Pirates. Uh, you wrote today about Andrew McCutcheon and the possibility of another extension, and just just kind of uh, throwing it out there. I believe a colleague asked uh, the uh, the Pirates owner about it. Uh, what what are is this a is this a possibility to happen this year at some point? And is and and what are the pluses and minuses as far as the Pirates and McCutcheon go with a possible uh, second extension for the former MVP? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic uh, the last couple of days because uh, my colleague Rob Beer Temple at the Trib asked Bob Gutting, the Pirates owner, the other day, would you be open to? 
to uh, signing McCutcheon to another extension. Now, McCutcheon's contract isn't up for four more years and the Pirates pick up his 2018 extension. But nonetheless, not even said, sure, we're, we're open to it. Uh, now, what that means, how serious it is, who knows? I mean, we're still, uh, we still have McCutcheon locked up for four years. But what I find really interesting is the parallel uh, to McCutcheon to Evan Longoria of the Rays because uh, in 2000, at the end of 2012, during that offseason, uh, Longoria was in the in the same spot McCutcheon is. I think he was a year younger, but he had signed a really undervalued contract as a young player. He was four years from free agency, like McCutcheon is now. Uh, he's very productive, and uh, he signed another extension with the you know the Rays tacked on I think eight years, 120 million dollars uh, in addition to that that initial contract. So the Rays got. Uh, Longoria got nine figures, and the Rays got another discount, assuming Longoria is going to be healthy and productive through, through the majority of that contract. So, if the Pirates wanted to lock up McCutcheon, uh, and they wanted some semblance of a discount, and they wanted this guy, maybe you know, if they wanted him to have a chance to retire as a Pirate, now would be the time when he's still pretty far away from free agency to to approach him and try again to get him tr- to trade some dollars for for security. Now, isn't that a good idea when they control McCutcheon to his age 31 season? I think that's the, the debate. I think uh, if you look at the bad and we all look at the aging curves and how players begin to decline at, after 32 and, uh, you know, the uh, the cost of this next contract, uh, the small market status, I think a lot of those things would suggest, no, you, you don't sign this guy. You, you, you just control him through his prime years in this contract and he walks. But there's also an emotional element where, uh, you know, people think he is the best, the most important pirate player since Clemente, perhaps. Uh, he's sort of been the, or he is the iconic face of this rebirth of the franchise. There's an emotional and I think a brand uh, issue here too that, uh, you know, I think has some significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but four years from now, there might be another parallel and that could be McCutcheon Pujols. I mean, the Cardinals were sort of torn with, you know, how uh, do we do we sign this guy? Do we let him walk? Uh, and ultimately, we all know that the Angels probably regret the contract they have on their hands right now. And uh, you look at Ken Griffey Jr., who after his age 30 season, he could be just one one season after a two hundred perfect placement player or, or better. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a tough call, but it's definitely an interesting thing to discuss. It's it's an interesting thought experiment right now. Uh, it's a good way for the season. You know, I look at the the roster for 2015, and it doesn't look too different from last season. Uh, and I guess two two areas that are different: uh, uh, the signing Junho Kang, and then the catching situation with the loss of Russell Martin. What what are the expectations for uh, Kang? Is he? Uh, I know. I, I guess it's hard to really know what he is since we haven't seen him play, uh, you know, stateside at any level. But but is he is he a shortstop? Is he a second baseman? Do they expect him to compete for a starting position? What what's what what are the expectations and what's his role at the moment? The, he's going to start as a utility player, okay. but the Pirates do believe he can play shortstop at the major league level. That's what their scouting reports have told them, and uh, they believe he can. I mean, they believe he can play second, third, short, but they believe he can stick at the, the most important defensive position in the infield. And the expectation is he will eventually be an everyday player. Uh, when that happens, who knows that it's going to depend upon whether he can uh, hit major league pitching. And it's going to depend on 
uh, who's the real Josh Harrison, how long is Neil Walker in Pittsburgh. I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors that will determine the answer to that question. But but they believe in them. They, they trust the, their scouting reports. They, they poured over video and spoke to a lot of people familiar with the KBO. So uh, they believe in this guy. They believe he has plus power and he can't hit and he can't stick on the left side of the field. So uh, if that's all true, then they have a pretty big bargain for, for four years and $11 million. Uh, and he's one of, you know, like you mentioned, there's not been a lot of turnover on this roster outside of Russell Martin uh, and replacing him with Cervelli. A lot of the key guys are back, including Burnett from the 2013 team. So Gong uh, is one of the guys who has a lot of intrigue surrounding him, and he's really the number one storyline uh, to watch in spring training. And I wonder if, I do think there's an opportunity with Gong because you look at the first, uh, when Cespedes came over, he was kind of undervalued because people didn't really, I don't know how much scouting was done. There was this unknown of how this how his Cuban statue translate. Even Jose Abreu was undervalued because of the, uh, I think the, un, the fear of the unknown that came to understand his performance in Cuba. So since Gong's the first KBO player, again, there's the fear of the unknown. And I think there's opportunity there for him to well exceed the contract he's been given. And that it's going to be really interesting to see how he does perform. Uh, you mentioned uh, the loss of Martin and bringing in Cervelli. The catching situation in general, is is this that they realize, you know, it's hard to just bring in a, a, a guy that can provide at a high level on offense uh, unless you're developing that guy. You know, the Pirates aren't going to go spending crazy money for a catcher. Uh, it, so are, is this team focusing on framing and just uh, leadership behind the plate? Is that what the addition of Cervelli and the backup of Stewart? I know both of those guys are considered good framers. Uh, what's the what's the thought process in bringing in Cervelli to replace Martin? Yeah, I think the Pirates still feel that there's not only a lot of that value in the training, but it's still undervalued in the marketplace. And when they're when they're looking at uh, catching options, I still think they believe that's where the most value is. I guess as I did with Russell Martin uh, two two years ago. So mm-hmm. I think that they love Cervelli training. They acquired Chris Stewart the year before. Uh, to have a above average pitch framer catching every every all 162 games, so uh, I think they believe the value is there. But I also think that they feel if Cervelli is healthy, he can provide at least league average offense a catcher too. So you combine the above average run control ability he has with the above average pitch framing, league average offensive performer. If he stays healthy, uh, they they might have an asset there. Of course, that's a big if because he's struggled to stay on the field throughout his career. Uh, but I think when you look at how little there was available to the catching market this offseason, uh, at least in free agency, I think they, they did reasonably well to to patch the considerable Russell Martin Lloyd with, with Cervelli. And they, they wanted Martin back. They went to a fourth year, which a lot of people did not believe they would go to with a, a 32-year-old catcher. So I think they were willing to, to risk a long-term loss on short-term stability there with, with Martin. but. I think they did pretty well to scramble and get Cervelli at that position. You know, you talked about how things it really turned around from 2012 to 13, uh, and and why that happened. And this right now, the, the Pirates look like a really healthy organization. Not only is the current major league roster strong, but but there's you know there's more coming with Tyon and Tyler Glasnow and Josh Bell, and, and you know that's that's coming soon. And then and then there's even more after that. The system is healthy uh, all throughout, and 
and I, I feel like this was really close to derailing just a few years ago. Things think, I remember, uh, I want to say it was a Navy SEAL training incident. The, the, the pirates looked in disarray at, at one moment. How close was this to just all falling off the rails and not going in the direction that it's gone, the, the very positive direction? I, I think the sense in Pittsburgh was in October, November 2012 that uh, the front office should be uh, there should be a regime change at the front office, and a lot of these guys would not be back. And that was a popular public sentiment. I'm not sure how close that came to happening, but I think you have to, to look back on that now and believe, you know, Bob Nunning was pretty wise for uh, letting Neil Huntington and his staff stick around and, and see this out because the dramatic turnaround, of course, followed. And and I guess that's a lesson in patience. I, and I think across baseball, you know, you look at most organizations, I haven't been too quick to pull to uh, to fire executives lately. It seems like there's a little more stability uh, in front offices as teams are, I think, more interested in developing young talent. And the Pirates, as you mentioned, are pretty healthy. They've been they've been good about hanging around with their top minor league talent. They haven't made uh, a lot of major trades. They haven't uh, they haven't traded any of their top line guys. And you look at and and there's a reason why they do that because you look at the Marlon Bird trade. They give up Wilson Herrera. And you know, Herrera is going to be a very good player for the Mets, probably. And you look at Bird, and he, you know, he was a he was a runner player. So the, Neil Huntington has not wanted to to trade young valuable assets. He's been very patient, methodical in this approach. And the end result is uh, when you look at I think patience is the operative word when you look at Nutting keeping uh, his front office in place. When you look at Huntington keeping the vast majority of his young talent in place, it has, that patience has given the Pirates a, a pretty healthy organization. From the major league level down to you know the the lowest level, each of the minor leagues. Yeah, that patience could really pay off, uh, especially with that outfield. Could have traded uh, both the guys in the corners and and gotten something real nice, a nice veteran piece, and and really gone all in on one of these seasons. But this looks like a healthy organization that's got got some really high end talent for cheap at the moment and and this could this could pay off for for a sustained run at success and and all you need to do is get into the playoffs and and you know we we see what happens with the royals they certainly weren't the most talented uh, of the of the you know how many teams make the playoffs now i'm forgetting 10 teams that make the playoffs but yeah. but uh but they 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 almost you know they they made it all the way to the world series and you know the, all it takes is is one little hot stretch and you just get in there and, and things can work out I, I i'd love to see the the pirates make that run soon because it's it just be a great story uh before before i let you go travis uh I'm asking everybody, and this isn't like the key to the season. I'm not looking for the key for the Pirates' success. I'm looking for what are you looking most forward to as a as a writer? What what intrigues you the most? What storyline? What event for the 2015 Pirates is what you're excited about? That's that's a good question. I don't know if there's there's one thing. I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think everyone's interested to see how can Dong translate his performance is he gonna really go to hit major league major league uh, pitching and then is Josh Harrison for real uh, is Jordy Mercer really I'm interested in the left side of the infield how is that going to play out I'd, I'd say that's probably my number one thing uh, but I think the number two storyline and this might play out over two years is you know you mentioned the health of the organization and it is in a good good place but the one glaring weakness last year was uh, starting pitching productivity. I think they were last or second to last major league baseball and wins above replacement. 
uh, among starting pitchers. And I think if they really want to take a shot at winning the division, if they if they really want to, to unseat the Cardinals as the, the the hegemonic power in the Central, they need better pitching, and they need Garrett Cole to be a frontline guy. And I think with a little more breaking ball consistency, Cole can be that guy. And then they have this wave of young pitching that's close to, to reaching the majors from Tyone to Glassnow to Kingham. And they need a couple of those guys to really hit and be top of the rotation guys if, if they want to be consistent uh, contenders and top players through the remainder of the decade. So I'm really curious to left side of the infield. I'm really curious to see how their uh, top 10 young pitching develops. I, I think that's really key to, to them sustaining this throughout the decade. I'm a huge Garrett Cole fan, so I'm I'm looking forward to a hopeful breakout 2015. I mean, it yeah, wasn't. I think he could be a breakout guy. I mean, I know a lot of people believe that, but I mean, he's he's shown flashes like the year last year too. Where definitely. Uh, I mean, just look at his last start in Cincinnati. He was as good as he's ever been. So he picks up where he was in September. He could uh he could have a breakout year, no doubt. Well, I'm looking forward to that for sure, Travis. Uh, why don't you let the listeners know? Uh, where they can find you on Twitter, where they can find your work uh, for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and, of course, uh, any details about maybe pre-ordering or when the book is coming out, because I'm sure many listeners want to get in on that. Right. Uh, as far as the book goes, uh, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Macmillan, the publisher, Flatiron, the publisher, which is under the Macmillan umbrella, any of those websites you can pre-order the book is. The book will be available, I think, in bookstores May 19th. I think if you pre-order, it might arrive a little a little sooner than that. But the, the tentative release date is May May 19th. But uh, we want pre-orders; those are big for us, so we appreciate any of those. And as far as my work for the Trib, on Twitter you can find me at Sobchik underscore Trib. That's you spell the Sobchik is S A W C H I K underscore Trib. Uh, and the Pittsburgh Tribune uh, website is uh, where you'll find our our daily coverage, blogs, articles, all that good stuff. So uh, if you're interested in Pirates coverage, appreciate a follow or any website visit for sure. That's Travis Sawchick, Pirates and MLB reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. I'm Sahadev Sharma. You can follow me on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma and, of course, find my work at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, Travis, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that's it for the Pirates Preview Podcast and for all of our preview podcasts this week. Thank you for listening. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. We are approaching 2,500 listeners. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. One other note, I will be on a panel on Saturday at 10.20 a.m. Eastern at the MIT Sloan Sports Conference. Jonah Carey and Dave Cameron and Dan Brooks and Sandy Alderson and I will be talking about baseball. So if you're at the conference, please say hello. And if you are at home, I believe that there is a live stream on YouTube that maybe you can get a free trial for. So check that out, and we hope that you have a wonderful weekend. We will be back with another Team Preview podcast on Monday. Ben? Yes? Are you starting, or should I? can I start? Well, you can start. Uh, you want to start? This is the first time you've ever expressed interest in starting, so I guess you must really want to start. I'm really, really into <laughs> starting. <today. laughs> My new thing.